ask you this. Does Christianity sometimes feel frustrating? Like over, like there's just so many plates to keep spinning. It's always an uphill battle. Like I gotta, I gotta pray enough and then I gotta run over here and I gotta get into the word more and read the Bible more. And then there's fellowship and I gotta get into community group. And then there's serving and giving. And then there's all the character issues I gotta work on, the sins that I'm trying to weed out of my life. And on and on and on it goes. And I just, I'm not enough. And eventually the plates stop spinning and one crashes and breaks. And Christianity just feels like this frustrating. It, it, it feels like it's a recipe for failure. And there's no way around it. And what if? What if I told you there's just one thing you need to focus on? Just one thing that God wants from you. Just one thing. And today what we're going to do is start a four-week series called Whole, where we're going to be unpacking really a passage from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 and following. And here's what it says. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, to give you some context for what's going on there, uh, this was, Jesus has been doing about three years of active ministry. Now he's entered Jerusalem. You know, the triumphal entry thing. That just happened. And then after that, what happened, he goes in the temple. Remember where he ticks over tables, he clears it all out because they're stealing from people there. So he clears out the temple. And then in the temple courts, he's teaching and he's giving these parables and, and the people just love him, love him. Except for the Jewish leaders, they don't love him. They're not as, a lot of the parables that he's told are quite clearly aimed at them. And they don't, so they want to get rid of Jesus, but the people love him. And so what they think is, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll send some representatives of our our leadership pack and they will go and they'll, they'll ask Jesus these trick questions. And, And so hopefully what we'll do, these rhetorical traps, they'll humiliate Jesus in front of the crowds. The crowds will turn on him and then we can grab him. So that's the goal. These, Trick questions. So they say, hey, uh, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Yes or no? Now, if Jesus says yes, he alienates the Jewish. The Romans are occupying them and the taxes go to Rome and, and the Jews hate him. So if he says yes, he's ticked off all the Jews. That's what they wanted. Or he can say, no, you don't have to. Then he's guilty of insurrection and the Romans will arrest him. Either way, they win. Trick question. So you remember what Jesus did? He said, show me a coin. Whose image is on that coin? Caesar's. Well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it so much. Here's what Mark says in chapter 12, verse 17. And they marveled at him. The Jewish leader's like, crap, that didn't work, right? So they go round two. And now they ask him uh, a trick question. I'm not going to get into the details, but it's from some of the leaders who didn't believe in a resurrection, an afterlife. 
And so it's a question about marriage and the eternal state intended to trap him. And again, Jesus nails it so that after that one, Matthew records this. And when the crowds heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Well, crap, that didn't work, right? So then they go for round number three. And they send a scribe or an expert in the law. Now, the law, it's not like our modern day lawyers. He was an expert in the Torah. It's the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. And there were laws in there. There's 613 commandments in there. And this guy's an expert. So his trick question, Jesus, is this. What is the greatest commandment in the law? Or what is the most important commandment in the law? Now, this is a rhetorical trap. It's a ranking question. Ranking questions are very difficult rhetorically. And you've seen how this goes down. So with political candidates, say, hey, if you're elected, what are the three most important things you'll do in office? The problem with a ranking question is, even if you choose the right three, which is really difficult to do, even if you choose the right three, you might order them wrongly. You might not prioritize them right. And so the trick rhetorically is refuse to rank. Refuse to rank. And that's why you'll hear political candidates say, well, you know what? There are a lot of things our country needs to focus on right now. Uh, three of the things that, that seem kind of important right now are, you know, see, so I said everything and then I'm going to refuse to rank. I'm just saying among all those that are all important, here are three that come to mind off the cuff. Refuse to rank. And Jesus has shown himself to be a rhetorical master. So when they ask him the greatest commandment in the Torah, what he ought to do is say this. Hey, let me ask you, is the Torah a scroll? Is it rolled or is it folded? It's rolled. And so should we roll our hearts around the whole law of God. I made that up. That's pretty good. Jesus could have used that, right? He didn't. He's smarter than me. He didn't use that. Or another thing he could have done is just refuse to rank. You know what? The whole law of God is important. Just yesterday, though, in my time with God, I was meditating on this one that seems interesting. Refuse to rank, right? Instead, if you're familiar with the quote from the, the movie, Jesus said, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. And, and he, he ranks. He ranks. He says, this is the one. Love God. That's it. Love God. And then... Our Lord, hey, let me tell you what number two is. He didn't even ask for number two. That's just bony. You don't have to do that. And he doesn't. And so much so that after that, the expert in the law says basically, dang, you nailed it. You nailed it, man. Uh, and it, it was so good. Jesus was so good that Matthew tells us in 22 verse 46 that eventually they're like, we tap out. We're done. We're not asking them any more questions. It's just not working. But as a result of all this, we now know the great commandment, the one thing that God wants from us is to love him. And of course, this makes sense. After all, we were not created for religion. It wasn't what God had in mind. We were created for relationship with God. Love is a relational word. The expert in the law, after saying Jesus nailed it, he then went on to say that this is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. What that means is all the religious duties and activities that Jews would go through, 
He's saying to love God is way more than all of that. Because you understand, God doesn't want your loveless religious activity. That's not what he wants. He wants you. He wants all of you. He wants the whole of you. And there's no amount of religion that makes up for a lack of love for God. This is what we were made for. To know him, to love him, to walk with him, to adore him, to worship him. And so through this series, I want you to catch this. To love God wholly is to become whole. This is what we were made for. To love God wholly is to become whole. It's great news. You just have to focus on one thing. Here's the problem. It's kind of hard to do. So Jesus points this out. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, he says, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Ooh, every mother in the room just tapped out. I'm done. Dad's like, eh, let's see where it goes. <laughs> let's see. But, but listen, it's obviously it's not just to love him with the whole of you, but it's to love him first is implied above everything else. So where God is at the center of our lives and everything is ordered around him, everything flows from him and flows back to him. He's at the center. And to do anything else, to do otherwise, to put anything else in the center is the definition of idolatry. Even if it's a good thing, like a child, that goes in the center, it becomes destructive. That's That's God's spot in our life. So you see, the essential reality of the universe is this. God is. That's it. God is. And he's amazing. And he made us for himself. The natural order that we should be in is that our lives are centered around God. Our whole selves are centered around love for God. But that's not how we live. We, we let idols slip in there and all hell breaks loose, literally. Because of a lack of God being in the center, lack of love for God. Now, however though, when we love him, like when we truly love him, like fully love him, everything else falls in order. Everything else flows. When Matthew recorded this interaction, he recorded Jesus saying this, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets is shorthand for the whole Old Testament. Everything. All those spinning plates. Everything. It, it just, if we keep the great commandment, we keep everything else. It just happens. It makes sense. If you think about it, every time you sin, every time I sin, this is true. Every time you sin, you violate the first commandment. If, if I am 100% purely, wholly loving God, in awe of God, focused on God, worshiping God, submitting to God, trusting God, I would never sin. Never. If, he is the one true God. He is infinitely wise. He knows everything. And his love toward me is perfect. Why in the world would I ever do anything other than what he says? You understand, to sin is insane. It's just absolutely insane, and yet we all do it. Why? Here's what happens. 
I lose my focus on God. I, I, I diminish my love for God. I forget who he is. I forget what he's like. I pause my love for him and I let something else slip right into the center. That becomes my love. And then I act accordingly, which means I follow my idol. I, I sin. That's what happens. But if I maintain whole love for God, I end up fulfilling all the other commandments. Think about it. If I'm just wholly loving God, I want to talk to him. I want to pray to him. I can't pray enough. If I am full of love for God, I want to read his Bible. I want to hear from him. You can't keep me out of the Bible. I I want to tell people about him. I'm I'm doing outreach all the time. I'm doing missions. Give to his kingdom. Oh my goodness, yes, I'm giving like crazy. I'm serving. I mean, fellowship with his other God lovers. Yes, I'm in. It just all flows. See, remember... To love God wholly is to become whole. It flows. So love God. Now, Jesus, as you notice, though, got a little bit more specific. And I'll underline it here at the end of the passage. He said to love God with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, and your whole strength. And we will talk about those in turn, but don't miss the fact the whole idea is whole. Like like all of you. And one of the ways we know that is because there's different versions of how this gets broken down. So for example, Jesus is actually quoting the Shema, which every Jew knows the Shema out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Interestingly, the Shema does not mention mind. It's not in the Old Testament. Jesus did. The Shema doesn't mind. Because to the Jew, the heart included the mind. Now, Jesus is teaching at a time where the Romans have conquered and Greek culture and language have overshadowed. And so we now view the mind separately. And so he includes mind as a separate category and specifies that. Matthew, when Matthew quotes this, he leaves out strength. Now, because the inerrancy of the word, we know that Jesus said all four. And it's fine for Matthew to say, hey, Jesus said these three. He didn't say he didn't say strength. Right? So he just focused on three of them that seemed important to him. That's okay. If I said, hey, Jesus told you to love the Lord your God with all your strength. Am I right? Well, yeah. I just didn't mention the other three at the time. That's what Matthew did. And it's okay. Why? Because the point is whole. Like all of you. It's not that you're these four separate parts. Like you are one unified being. It's whole. And you need all the parts to work. Some things are like that. You know that, right? Some things are. So think of the Avengers Infinity War. Okay? Thanos wants the gauntlet, right? And therefore he can wipe out 50% of all living creatures in the universe. That's good to have life goals, right? So, so that's what he wants to do. And, and, but to do it, you know what? He needs all six Infinity Stones. And if he only gets five, it doesn't work. You've got to have the whole. Some of you are not with me. <laughs> Harry Potter and the Horcruxes. All right, you got to have all seven to wipe out Voldemort. If you only have six, you got nothing. Some of you still not. Okay. You need four wheels on a car. All right, I have four wheels on a car. Right? If you only have three, you're like, but I got 75%. You got nothing. You're not going anywhere. You need the whole for it to work. Some things are just like that. Love is like that. Today, I want you uh, later, and when you get on, you tell your significant other, you say, I love you. And what if the response comes back? I mostly love you. 
I partially love you, like a good 60%. Not what we're looking for. That's, that love is like that. Our love for God is like that. Jesus says, love God with the whole of you, all of you. Now listen, you'll never have all of God. He's infinite. There's no way you could ever have all of him. The question is, does he have all of you? Does he have all of you? Do you love him wholly? And that's what it means to be whole. To love God wholly is to become whole. Nonetheless, we will break it down. We'll talk about heart and soul and mind and strength. Just realize they overlap a ton. Right? Sometimes when the Bible speaks about the heart, it's talking about stuff that we would associate with the mind. And then what about the spirit? Where, which one does that go in? And so these overlap a lot. That is okay. After all, <laughs> even as we talk about the heart today, we're aware at this point uh, that, that these are figurative. Like the organ that, that does it, we know it's the brain now, right? These are electrical impulses across synapses. And, and so the, the brain is the physical organ. But we're talking about the figurative heart, the figurative soul, the figurative mind. And if, if you want to break those down, let me give you some tags, okay? So when we talk about the heart, we're talking about the seat of your affections, your emotions, uh, the seat of your choices, your will, your volition. When we talk about the soul, we're talking about life, your being, your existence, your personality, your spiritual life. When we talk about the mind, we're talking intellectual, reasoning, uh, that kind of stuff, thinking. Physical, we're talking in strength, is, is your physical, your physical body in energy, okay? Now, if that seemed too complicated, let me oversimplify for you. Heart is emotional, soul is spiritual, mind is intellectual, strength is physical. But I'm admitting up front, this is way too simplistic. That's why we're going to take some weeks and, and, and wade into the details a little bit more. And we'll do that today by talking about heart. So what does heart mean? Well, the Greek word is cardia. Does that sound for cardiac? What's a cardiac arrest? Heart attack right? It's about a heart. Now it's confusing because again, now we know this physical organ is actually one that just pumps blood. It's a muscle that pumps blood around the body. That's all it is. But we have given it a figurative meaning, right? Now in other cultures, they don't go, in other cultures, what we associate with the heart, they associate with the liver. And for us, that's just alcoholism right? Uh, or, or, or some cultures use stomach or bowels. Like today, tell your, your significant other, say, I just love you with all my bowels. And see if that connects, you know, see if that does it for you. And probably not, probably not. So we need to do a little bit better than that. What do we mean by heart? We mean these three things. Your whole heart is your adoration, emotion, and volition. Volition is will or choices, Okay. And we're going to talk through those in turn. So let's start with adoration. Adoration is about your treasure. You adore what you treasure. You treasure what you adore. Think of Gollum with the one ring. My precious. I mean, that's his treasure. And his life centers around it, right? So that goes together. Jesus would talk about our treasure. And he does that in Matthew chapter 6. Look at this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Look at this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's a connection between your heart and your treasure. Uh, what, what is your treasure grips your heart, and what grips your heart is your treasure. And interestingly, Jesus connected that to heaven. And in this case, heaven is not a question of where, it's a question of what, or perhaps who. Let me help you see that by quoting John Piper. Now, this is one of my favorite quotes. I've, I think I've shared it with you before, but it's really important. Look at this. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters. Ready for it? Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Where's your treasure? Where's your treasure? Are you like to love God with the whole of ourselves, with my whole heart, is to love the giver, not the gifts. It's to say to heaven with my heart, to hell with everything else. Just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. To know him is adoration. He is amazing. Remember, Jesus is God in the flesh. We're talking about God himself. God is awesome. Awesome gets misused. Awesome means awe-inspiring. It's that feeling you have when you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and your heart, like, to, to talk about God, listen, we're talking about the one true God of the universe. He is omni times three. He's omnipotent, means all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. And he's omniscient. He knows all things. He's perfectly holy. He's infinite. He's huge. He's awe-inspiring. And then there's his character. Loving, gracious, and patient, and merciful, kind. There's his creativity. He speaks and things fling out. And and my goodness, they're gorgeous. The beauty of his majestic creativity. And then there's this gracious mercy because all of us have given him the finger and he ought to just squash us and send us all to hell and be done with it. And, and yet instead he took on flesh and died in my place. God died in my place. And then to experience his love and his forgiveness, me too, you want me? Are you kidding me? And I want you to know this, as I list those things that are true about God, you've got to hold on to this. Everything I just said about God is always true. When you're having a bad day, when you're having a bad week, when you're having a bad month, when you're having a bad year, if you're having a bad life, all that about God is still true. And we love him and we adore him. I want you to have a heart that is overwhelmed with love for God. And to maybe just nudge you in that direction a little bit, I'm going to read to you four passages passages of Scripture. I'm not going to break them down. I'm not going to comment on them. I just want you to feel this. So just take this on board. 
One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Flip over to the New Testament. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's just you, Jesus. You're my treasure. I've got nowhere else to go. I've got nowhere else that I want to go. You're God. You're amazing. You're my treasure. I adore you. That's adoration. Now, uh, adoration is synonymous with affection. The word affection means it affects you. It has an effect on you. When you treasure Jesus like that, it affects your emotion and your volition. So remember, we just talked about adoration. Now we're going to talk about emotion and volition. As soon as we start to talk about emotion, right off the rip, some of you are like, I'm not emotional. And I'm calling bull crap this morning. Yeah. Listen, everybody has emotions. To be human is to have emotions. We fall in love. It's emotional. Uh, and then, then the wedding day thing, the guy that's like non-emotional, the door's open, the bride is seen, for, and he's crying, right? Or we're there when our kids are born and we're emotional. Or then the kids are growing off and somebody's bullying my kid. You're emotional, right? You get emotional about that. What about sports? <laughs> I'm not emotional until my team is winning or losing. Or if the refs are bad, Lord have mercy, we're emotional. Or if you're into sports, if you PR in your sport, oh, you're emotional, right? And there's all kinds of politics, y'all get emotional. Road rage, emotional. Or just play golf. And you're emotional, right? Don't tell me you're not emotional. Now, some are more or less expressive about their emotions, like my wife is known as the crier, right? She's a sympathetic crier. It's one of the beautiful things that I love about how God made her. But, you know, she'll come to me. It's sunny out today. Next day, God's watering the earth. You know, she's crying about everything, right? Like, it doesn't matter, right? It's a beautiful part of her. But I'll tell you, some are more expressive. I get that. But here's my fear. My fear is that I think when we say I'm not emotional, sometimes we mean this. I'm emotional about other things that matter to me, just not about God. How's that settle? 
I'm talking about the most amazing being in the universe, the one true God, the most amazing story ever, the ultimate reality of the universe, the savior of my life, my meaning, my purpose, my father who has adopted me. He cannot wait to take me home to eternity as his kid. Yeah, I'm not emotional about that stuff. Uh-uh. Really? Really? Listen, you are emotional. Your emotions follow what you treasure. Take that to the mag. And when you love God wholly, it will trigger your emotions. It does. It comes out in worship. Now, when we worship, we often worship to music, and we'll say things like, I was moved by the, by the music. When it comes to worship, it's not music that moves us. It's God himself. I am moved by who God is. I am moved by what God has done. And when you look throughout the scriptures, there's all kinds of way, ways that people physiologically respond to what they treasure. So singing out loud and proud, absolutely, it's in there. But there's other things in the scriptures, like people fell to their knees. They fell on their face before God in worship. Yes, raising your hands is biblical, physiological response to what I worship. And then there's weeping. Sometimes I weep in prayer. Sometimes I right there sing along with you. It happens in the closing song. I'm like, crap, I gotta go back up. (laughs) Weeping, laughing. Laughing is in the Bible as a physiological response to worship. The point is that your heart does respond emotionally to that which you adore. And and people, God has given us so much. Can we give him the gift of our emotion? Like we give to other things? Can we give it to our God? Think about the guy who never says, I love you, to his wife. You know, there's that age-old joker who said, well, I told you on our wedding day, if it changes, I'll let you know. (laughs) Great. We know that's wrong. Let me ask you, is that the way you are with God? I told God I loved him on the day I received Jesus. And if it changes, I'll let him know. It just doesn't feel right. Now, let me just pause for a second. If you don't have a lot of emotion toward God, right? listen, what are we going to do? Shame and condemnation? That's not helpful. Okay, I'll come back to it where we're supposed to go. But I at least want you to move towards humility and growth. Let's at least do that. Emotion should be a part of it. So we've talked about adoration, we've talked about emotion, now let's talk about volition. What you adore is the fount of your affections. It affects your emotions, but it also affects your volition. Volition means will, choices, actions, what you do. So for example, the guy that says, I love my wife, and he also beats his wife, is a guy that does not love his wife. I don't care what he says. That's just, that, that, that doesn't line up. It, your adoration affects your actions. There's an inseparable connection between the heart and actions. The heart produces actions consistent with its treasure. And so the guy who hits his wife does not treasure his wife. He treasures himself or something else, but not her. Volition gets affected. Now, to take this towards our relationship with God, I'm going to quote a guy uh, that I will call Jason Derroche. 
I actually don't know how to say his last name. I just hope it's that, okay? <laughs> You'll see this. <clears throat> but here it is. He said, this means that the covenant love we're called to must be wholehearted, life-encompassing, community-impacting, exclusive commitment to our God. This truth means that every closet of our lives needs to be open for cleaning. And every relationship in our lives must be influenced. This call to love God this way destroys any option of being one person at church and another person on a date. What you do on the internet needs to be just as pure as what you do in Bible reading. The way we talk to our parents needs to be as wholesome as the way we talk to our pastors. Don't put a lot of hope in that last one, because sometimes, sometimes people aren't so nice. But anyway, you get the idea, though. You get, you get the idea. Loving God with your whole heart ought to be reflected in your life. It comes out in your actions, in your choices, in your volition. So, to have a life that is orbiting around love for God, that is true life. It's what you're made for. Okay? Like to, to be away from loving God with your whole heart is to be a fish out of water flopping around on the beach while the breath slowly leaves your body. It's not what you were created for. Instead, to love God wholly is to become whole. I told you already, you'll never have all of God. He's infinite. The question is, does he have the whole of you? And part of that is loving God with your whole heart, which we've talked about is adoration, emotion, and volition. Now, as promised, what if you're not there? I mean, so what do we do? Shame on you? You're horrible? Why don't you leave now? Does that help? That negative self-talk? Condemnation doesn't help at all. That's not it. Instead, here's where I want you to go. I want you to repent and pray. Repent is, it's a weird word, but it just means to turn around. Like I, I was going in this direction and, I, and actually I'm going to do a Yui and I'm going to go back. So repent and, and pray, that's it. Now you've heard the phrase half-hearted, right? If we're honest, a lot of us have half-hearted love for God. I don't want you to have half-hearted love for God. I want you to repent of that and, and go towards wholehearted love for God. I want you to repent of loving things above God, loving things other than God, loving things before God. Uh, Repent of allowing other things to get into the center of your life, even good things. Repent of restraining your adoration, restraining your emotions, because you're more afraid of what other people around you might think rather than what God thinks. Let's repent of that. And declare your wholehearted love for God today and then run to the Father. Run to Him. We're talking about the one who created you, died for you, the one who chose you and called you and adopted you, the one who cannot wait to take you home to be in eternity with Him. Run to Him today. And you might do that in your heart while we have this closing song. You might do that after the service while we have a pastor and elders up here to pray with you. I want you to repent and I want you to pray and I want you to run to the Father. And to that end, let me pray.
Father, we, we have to admit, yes, I, I get that some of us do this better than others, but if we're honest, every last one of us is half-hearted at best. There's no way we have it all down where we're whole. And we want to repent of that today. We want to run to you right now. We want to love you with our whole heart. That you would be our adoration. You would have our emotion. You would have our volition. That we would act accordingly in line with our love for you. Father God, stir our hearts right now as we sing out hard to you, as we run to you. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.